Enjoying the sun? It does exist. 96 today, 95 today. Who likes it hot? Who doesn't like it hot? I like to 100. I'm fine up to 100. Over 100, I start, hmm, searching for water. Jesus, we thank you for this brilliant day that you've given to us. This is the day that you have made, and we can make the choice to rejoice and to be glad in it, regardless of circumstances, regardless of what's happening, Lord, that our joy can surpass that, because we know you are on the throne, and that you have defeated death, sin, our enemy, that you are recreating each of us, Lord, as new creations, and that, Lord, one day you are going to return and make all things right, reconcile all things, the renewal of all things, Lord. And so we can rejoice this day. I pray as we think and read and study, I pray that the pattern of our thinking and our minds would be being renewed by Scripture, that we would be shaped according to your character and this story that we've been given. So help us. Apply it to our hearts, we pray. And I ask this in your name. Amen. So we will be in Genesis 15. Uh, On Thursday, when I was thinking this through, I just sat down and I wrote out a list of things that in my 45 years, they've shocked me. Like, this is shocking to me. I'll give you a few of them. I grabbed a couple. Number one, this is shocking to me. No one has a clue about life. Right? Life is like this giant experiment. And there's this idea, I think, in our mind that there's a guru out there. If we could just get close enough to the guru, life would be figured out. That is just a lie. No one's got it figured out. It's okay to try and to learn and to fail and to grow. Yes, some people are a little bit further along in the experiment, but ultimately, no one has a clue. That's the truth. Number two, there are no normal people. I talk to a lot of people. I have yet to meet someone. I would say, that person's normal. Like the only difference in people is some are much better actors than others. But every person I talk to, they have a crazy story. I'm like, that is a crazy story. Whoa, that's unbelievable. There's no normal people, right? Whenever there is like a serial murderer who gets caught, and they go to his neighborhood, what do all the neighbors say? He was so nice and quiet. I just can't believe that. You're like, oh man, makes you thankful for your loud, obnoxious jerk neighbors. You're like, they're not going to be a serial murderer, you know? They can be a lot of other things, but they're not going to be that. I was shocked when my second child was so different than my first. Like, I just thought, oh, I got this thing figured out. We'll just start, you know, chunking them out. It's like with every new child, it feels like I'm relearning how to be a parent because what worked with child number one does not work with child number two. It's like, oh, I have to learn everything again. I was super shocked. The first time I asked one of my kids to do something and they looked straight at me and they just said, no. I was like, what? That's not supposed to happen to me. That happens to bad parents. What is this? Who are you? I was shocked. 
about how love grows. So I had Carissa 16 years ago, and I remember holding her and thinking, first child, there's no way I could love another child like I love this child. There's no way. There's, I don't have the capacity. And then I had Isabella, and I could, and I had Gabrielle, and I could, and I had Elijah, and I could, and I had Myron, I could, and two foster kids. It's, it's amazing. So I thought love was like a pie. And the more people you had, the less pie you got, right? But I think love is closer to music. That the more people you have listening to music, the more enjoyable it is. That it doesn't take away from love to have more people. It actually makes it more enjoyable. Which to me, when I think about God in that kind of a relationship, it makes God seem, wow, because God is love. Um, I was shocked about how older people are strangely right. <laughs> right? When you are a kid, old people are morons. Like they are clueless. Ah, I'm not listening to you. You're a moron. What do you know? I'm 16. You're a moron. <laughs> and then the older I get, I'm like, man, I remember somebody said that to me. They were right. <laughs> yeah. I'm amazed about how mundane faithfulness moves the world. We think the world is moved by these massive events in our life. And the more I've noticed, it's actually in being faithful to do what you need to do in the morning and step that out throughout the day, through the week, through the month that changes the world. And it's exactly what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16. If you're faithful in that which is least, more is gonna be given. I'm shocked, especially recently, how buzzing flies at night never seem to get tired. I'm like, really, again? Almost just like, I'm like, ah, take a break for crying out loud. What are you? <laughs> You're superhuman. <laughs> Lastly, I was shocked about how great of a parent I was before I had kids. <laughs> chapter 15 is a shocking chapter. There's a text in here that I think is the most shocking text in the Old Testament. In fact, it might be the most important verse in the entire Old Testament. It's quoted by the book of Romans, by the book of Galatians, and by James. Which if you just look at what that covers right there, you're like, wow, that's quite a verse. It's a incredible, incredible truth. And it's shocking if you understand it. So, Genesis 15, we'll begin in verse 5, and then we'll look at this shocking verse. And he, this is God, Wednesday we'll do a bunch of work in this chapter, it is an epic chapter. Wednesday, I mean, excuse me, verse 5, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Yahweh appears to Abram and says to Abram, who is 85 years old, his wife is 76 years old, look, you're going to have kids and they're going to number more than the stars that you can see right now. Right? That's an unbelievable promise. Like Abram, and Sarah had been trying to have kids for, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, I don't know how long they'd been married, but probably 60 years. And they had no kids. 
And so God says to Abram, listen, you're gonna have more kids than the stars in the sky, all right? So then verse six is the key text, maybe in the entire Old Testament. And he believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's a shocker. He believed Yahweh. You can have all these kids, even though you're 86 and your wife is, you're 85 and your wife is 76. You can have all these kids. All right. He believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. The word righteousness is a key word in the Old Testament. It's actually a key word in life. It's the Hebrew word tzedakah. And if you ever ask the question yourself, like, what does God want? Well, Isaiah the prophet actually answers it. It's Isaiah chapter five, verse seven. And Isaiah writes this poem about Israel being God's vineyard. And then God comes to the vineyard and says, this is what I want from my vineyard. He goes, I want justice, Mizpah, and Sadaqah, righteousness. What I want for my people is justice and righteousness. I want Sadaqah. That's what I'm looking for. This is what God wants. Sadaqah, what it means is this. It means the right attitude and the right actions toward God that lead to shalom, which is a well-ordered, flourishing life the way God designed it. That's righteousness. Right attitude, right action toward God that leads to this shalom, this flourishing, that, that we live life how God designed it to be lived. Abram has it. How does he get it? How does he get this sadaqah? Does he keep all the rules? Doesn't appear that he does that. Does he eat the right food? Kosher, paleo, vegetarian, vegan, kale only. Is that what he does? No. Does he donate a kidney to a handicapped orphan in Mexico? Nope. Does he climb Mount Shasta in shorts and meditate all night till he becomes enlightened? Nope. Does he carry around a giant King James Version red letter only Bible? Is it his bumper stickers? Is it his t-shirt? Is it, he's a, he's a nice guy. No. What does Abram do? He believed Yahweh. You know what the word believed is? It's the Hebrew word, amen. That's what it is. Abram amened Yahweh. That's all he did. Yahweh says, Abram, you're gonna have more kids than you can count. And Abram goes, amen. That's it. <laughs> all right. Totally cool. Awesome. Yes. And it says that he counted it. Right? You know how we use the word counted? It's like this. So Wednesday night, we finished our Bible study and there's like seven of us still here. So we invented this game called One Touch Soccer. And it was, you had to kick the soccer ball against that wall back there. And you try to make it back to this wall before the next guy could one touch it back and hit that wall. And so because it was an invented game, we're like kicking the ball and uh, we're having to almost invent the rules. So one of the kids hit the backboard and we're supposed to hit the wall, he hit the backboard. And so we said, no, it counts. It's good, it's righteous, keep playing, right? 
That's what it means. So then I get it one time and I kicked a burner. I'm going to say 250 miles per hour. I mean, just a burner. It went back there and he hit that cage that our projector's in and just pieces fell off of it. Yeah. So everyone's like, that does not count. That is unrighteous. And I hate to lose. I was like, I think it should count. Right? We know what count means. It counts. So God counts it. Yeah. Righteous. Abram, that is what I, you amend me. When I told you something unbelievable, you're 85, your wife, wife is 76, you're going to have more kids than you can number. Amen. Righteous. Sadakah. Isn't that amazing? New Testament, Jesus has asked the same question. What do we need to do to be righteous? What do we need to do to do the work of God? What do we need to do to make God happy? It's John chapter 6, verse 28. Jesus replies, believe on him whom the Father sent. Amen. (laughs) Yeah, if we were charismatic, we'd all be saying amen right now. We're edgewater, so at least smile. Like, that's good news. All right. (laughs) This is really good news. This is the good news. It's believe, amen, amen, Yahweh. And it's counted as righteousness. That's shocker number one. Because every religious system is trying to figure out how to get righteousness. How do we get that shalom? How do we get that kind of life, right? Buddhism has its eightfold noble path. Do all these things and you get it. Islam has the five pillars. And they all have, it's, a, it's always a massive system. Hinduism with ritual washings and prayers and offerings and all this kind of stuff. And yet here you have at the very, very beginning of the book, the book of Genesis, Abram, amen, Yahweh, and it was counted as righteousness. That's a shocker. Here's shocker number two, all right? So Abram just is like, amen, God, I'm going to have tons of kids. I don't know how. I'm 85. My wife is 76. Amen. But then look what happens, shocker number two. And he said to him, I am Yahweh, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Yahweh God, actually, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? What just happened right there? Did you notice that? Verse six, amen. Two verses later, yeah, I don't know. God, I just don't know. I can almost see him cringing like, is lightning coming? I don't know. Like, are you sure you're going to do this for me? Uh, I don't know. He has doubt. Verse six, unbelievable faith. Two verses later, ah, uh, just, I'm, not, I'm not, not really sure. Not really sure. I can see him almost cringing, like, is God going to send me to hell? Oh, no, I don't believe. Do you know doubt is not a terrible thing? Do you know that? I grew up kind of in an environment where I felt like doubt was terrible. That in church, we believe in here. If you're a doubter, get out of here. Go somewhere else, because in church, it's believe. We amen what God says, and that's it. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. God says it here, does Abram believe it? Not in this turn, right? 
He doubts it. I just don't, I just don't know. I don't know if you're going to actually give me the land. How, do I, how am I supposed to know that? He doubts. Like doubt plagued me for a season. And I heard like one of my favorite preachers, he still is to this day, he's in heaven. I listened to like everything he did. And in this certain message I heard from him, he said this, I doubted one time when I was 15 years old for five minutes. And after that, I just believed. I heard that, that crushed me. I'm like, oh my goodness. Man, I've had seasons where I doubt every five minutes. Like, whoa, oh no, God's never gonna use me as a doubter. And then I start reading the Bible and you got this hero of the faith who is held up in the New Testament as the hero of faith, who in one voice he's saying, man, I believe, amen, Yahweh. And then the next promise he's like, yeah, I just don't know if you can do that. I'm not really sure. Listen to me carefully. Faith is not ignoring your doubts. Faith is facing your doubts. And very often it is doubt that becomes the vehicle that leads to a stronger, more vibrant faith and reveals something incredible about the very character of God. It is, as Timothy Keller would say, it can lead to the very antibodies of faith that make you stronger, that make you better, right? It's like this. It's almost like physically we know this to be true. So I have a journal article from the American Medical Association on autoimmune disease, and it's centered on MS. And what it said about MS that I found fascinating was this, that um, you have a 90% reduction in the possibility of getting MS if you grew up with siblings. Now, why would that be? Because brothers and sisters are like plague rats, right? They're constantly bringing into your home the flu, colds, fevers, bacteria, viruses. It's the vector by which disease gets into your home, right? Every family's had like the cold or the flu that goes through your entire home, like starts at one and then just goes through all the family and then it starts over again. You know why? Because it got stronger and it's like, I can take you now. And so it's like starts over and like, oh no, it's been eight months since one of us has been healthy. This is insane, right? So they had this thing, it's called the hygiene hypothesis, that if you live in too clean of an environment, your immune system is never stressed the way it's supposed to be stressed. So you never get strong like you're supposed to be strong. Isn't that awesome? So moms, you should love this study, right? So when your in-laws complain about a dirty home, you just say, it's a sacrifice I make for my children. I want them to grow up to be healthy and strong. I know I don't like it either, but this is the best for them, right? I let my kids eat dirt. I let them lick the elevator buttons. I'm like, no problem. Just makes you stronger, son. <laughs> there was ice cream on there at some point. I know it's good. I have not convinced Charity of that yet. I'm working on her. In fact, I don't think I've convinced anybody of it, but it's like that. Like the, the stressor very often that is the catalyst for stronger faith, it's moments like Abram right here. He, he, amen, yeah, oh, so be it, God. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know, Lord. I'm, I'm just not sure. I don't know. It's a lot like the dad who brought his son to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you believe, your son can be healed. And the dad responds, I believe, amen. And then the very next phrase is, help my unbelief. 
I just don't know. Man, that's the walk right there. That's how you get strengthened. That creates the antibodies of faith. And God doesn't say, Abram, I'm done with you. You doubter, forget it. Because we get shocker number three, how God responds to Abram's doubt. Check this out. Verse nine, he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half against the other. He did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. Okay. So Abram, amen, I believe. Uh, help my unbelief. It's been 10 years, God. I just don't know if I can believe this. It's been a long time. So God says to Abram, grab these animals and bring them to me. Abram already knows what to do. He cuts them in half because if you went back 4,000 years ago and you wanted to make an agreement with somebody, you did not have a piece of paper. You didn't have lawyers sign contracts. Your word was not your bond. You didn't handshake on it. What you did was you cut covenant. You took animals, you cut them in half, you laid them in a straight line. One party started at one end, the other party started at the other end. You met in the middle and what you're saying is this, we are dead serious about this agreement. If we fail, let us become like these dead animals that we're standing in the middle of. It was called cutting covenant. Abram knows it. God doesn't have to even tell him that. Hey, go get, go get the covenant. Go, go get the stuff. And he does it. Could you imagine that today? Go to the bank, get a loan. They bring out a cow and a chainsaw. All right, let's do it. You're like, ah, oh, maybe I don't want the money after all. <laughs> I'm so thankful. It's just a credit check and sign your name 3,300 times. I'm like, that is awesome. Could you imagine marriages like this? Like if the covenant of marriage was done in the middle of a dead cow, right? Four better, four worse, four rich, four poor until death do us part, right? Either stay faithful or it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Your choice. There might be a little bit more thought about that covenant. That's what they're doing right here. This is cutting covenant. This is we are dead serious about this. So Abram does all this work. He cuts up, open these animals. He's shooing away the birds of prey and he keeps waiting. Like, come on. What's taking you so long? Like, do you like to wait? Ever said, hey, come on, what's taking you so long? Did you say it this morning to your kids or to your spouse? Come on, what's taking you so long? You ever said that to God? Come on, what's taking you so long? That's Abram. Like, come on, what's taking you so long? And then finally, here's what happens. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Where else have we seen somebody fall into a deep sleep? Adam. And out of Adam was birthed something. We're seeing something right here birthed. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, know for certain that your offsprings will be sojourners 
in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. Fascinating language about God right there. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay, so here's what happens. Abram gets the animals, he cuts them in half. He's working, 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 working. And then finally he just is like, man, I can't wait anymore. I'm tired. And he falls asleep. God appears when he falls asleep. And what God does is he starts at one end of these animals and he goes all the way to the middle, but he doesn't stop there. He goes all the way through all the animals. What God was doing was demonstrating something to Abram that's unbelievable. It's shocking. What God was saying is, Abram, this covenant, it's not based on you or your power or your faithfulness or your goodness or how great of a guy you are. It's not based on you. It is based completely and entirely on me and my power and my faithfulness. I will keep this covenant but he's saying something else as well. Remember when you cut covenant and you met in the middle of those animals, what you said was this, if the covenant is broken, if I break my side, then let me be ripped in half like this cow. And the other side would say, and if I break my side, let me be ripped in half like this cow. Right? So God goes from one end to the other. And what he's saying is this, if I break my side, let me be ripped in half like this cow. But then he keeps going. And what he's saying is this, and Abram, if you break your side, let me be ripped in half like this cow. Now, does Abram fail? Yeah, chapter 16, next week. Failure, big time failure. Chapter 20, failure, big time failure. It's the same failure he did in chapter 12. He does it again, Right? Do his descendants fail? Read about Jacob and Esau. Do they fail? Oh my goodness. Right? Lying, stealing, wanting to kill each other. Does Jacob's 12 sons fail? Yeah, they grab their brother and they sell him into slavery. Their first option was kill him. The better option was sell him to slavery. Does the nation of Israel fail? Absolutely they fail. So guess what God does? He keeps this covenant. And he walks up a hill called Calvary and he is ripped in half to keep covenant. That's what you see right here. It's God saying, I will keep this covenant. Abram, if you fail, I'll allow myself to be ripped in half like these animals to keep this covenant. It's the good news. It's the gospel from the beginning. 
Listen, the gospel is not the second message. It's not a secondary message. It's not, hey, we tried everything else and it failed. The gospel has been the message from the very beginning. In fact, Revelation 13, eight says this, that it was before the foundation of the world. God knew humans will fail. And so what I will do is I will make sure, I will make sure that this covenant is kept. I will go all the way. It's always been his plan. The good news has always been Jesus, God in the flesh, would come, be ripped apart to keep the covenant and reconcile us back to the Father and renew the creation. It's always been the plan. Well, why would God make that kind of a plan? Let me give you three quick reasons. There's a bunch. I'll give you three. Here's why. Number one, faith. Too often people read this book. You know how they read it? I'm trying to find a guru. I'm trying to find an example of someone to model my life after. Would you want to model your life after Abram? Just in what we've studied about him. Lie about your wife, let her get taken into a harem. Yeah, I just don't think so. It's going to get worse. Chapter 16. You don't want to model your life after Abram. How about David? David is held up as the premier king in the Old Testament. You want to model your life after David? Liar, adulterer, murderer right? You're going to be in the pen if you model your life after David. The Bible is not about finding gurus to mentor you or to be examples for you. The Bible is a story about God coming in the flesh as Jesus to reconcile and renew humanity. That's what this entire book is about. And if you read it any other way, you get mixed up and weird. God's plan A has always been, I'm going to come. And this story is about me, not about you, Matt, not about people that you can example after or look to. No way. The Bible is about me. It's my story and how I work with people, how I take bad people and make them good. It's about faith. When we amen that, that's righteousness. It's about faith. So Philippians 1 verse 6 says this, man, I'm confident of this one thing, that he that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That he that began a good work in you is not gonna stop halfway through. He's gonna keep going until it's complete. It's Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless on that day. Be the glory. To him, be the glory. It's John chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus says, I've got you in my hand and no man can snatch you out. And not only that, the father has you in his hand and no man can snatch you out. This book it's about God who comes in the flesh and the person of Jesus and rescues us. And we're supposed to put our faith, our amen in that. That's number one. And number two, it's about hope. It's about hope. Because like Abram, we're gonna fail. Do you know that? If you've lived any kind of life, you know at some point you will experience failure. And here's what happens so often in our minds. We think it's like halfway. So God's mad at us then. My failures made God mad at me. That he is now my heavenly father up in heaven, arms crossed, just kind of ticked at me. Ugh, can't believe they did that again. And that's what it looks like. So there is deep in a lot of Christians' hearts, and I've talked to enough of them to know this, deep in our heart, we kind of have this feeling that God tolerates us today because he's looking for the future Matt that gets things right. Yeah, I'll put up with him because I know down the road, he'll start figuring it out. But right now, oh, moron. 
we kind of have this idea that God is awaiting a future version of us that then he will love and accept. There is nothing like that in scripture. Do you know that? When you believe, the Bible says this, you become a son or a daughter of King Jesus. There is no, hey, we got a six months probation period, Matt. After six months, we'll evaluate how you're doing and maybe then we'll start adoption. We'll think about it. No, it's in or out. It's, it's, it's that simple. Either you're a son and a, or a daughter or you're not. That's all it is. So it's, it's kind of like this. Here's my illustration. I have a three-year-old son right now. His name is Myron. Myron is reteaching me how to be a parent. He's one of those, like, ah. Oh. So yesterday morning, I'm studying. I'm out of my study. I'm studying. And um, Charity had gone for a run. Now, she had taken with her our two foster kids, Terrain and Arrow, because here's what they do. At six o'clock sharp, they wake up. I mean, it doesn't matter. If everybody is quiet and we're creeping up, at 6 a.m., they wake up. And when they wake up, they're like microwave ovens. They're instant on. Boom, they're like yelling and screaming. or like, get downstairs and be quiet, right? My kids are so different. They're like crock pots. They wake up and they like crawl to like the couch. And then they like sit up for a little while and they get the table. They're like much slower at waking up, which is nice. You know, I'm like, oh, that's better. Not training arrow. It's just like, ah, I'm like, ah. So she took them riding on their bikes with her as she ran, all right? So I get a call like 7.15, 7.30, and she's like, hey, Arrow, who is four, is tired on his bike. So I drove down there really quick. I picked him up, and I come back in, and I come back in, and Myron had woken up, and he had gone to the bathroom. He's my three-year-old. He's in the bathroom, and he has to be wiped at this point. So I go in there to, to, to wipe Myron, and Myron's like, not you. I want mommy. I'm like, buddy. Mommy's like five miles away running. Now she's fast. She'll be in about 10 minutes. Do you want to sit on this party for 10 minutes? Not you. I don't want you. I'm like, dude, I don't want to wipe your behind. <laughs> it's not like I'm like desperately wanting, please let me. I'm like, fine, sit there. Ugh. He gets up every single night and comes into my bed still. And he cannot lay parallel. He has to form the H. Why do kids do that? Man, you're underneath the, what? And then he gets his feet right next to me and then he just kicks me. He doesn't like anything touching his feet. So it's just like, whack, whack, whack. And I'm like on the edge, like, oh God, I just want to sleep, please. I go on and on. But here, I can't imagine loving Myron more than I do right now. I'm not waiting for him to figure out the toilet better. I'm not waiting for him to know me better. I'm not waiting for him to be more patient. I'm not waiting for any of those things. I'm not waiting for him to bench press 300 pounds. The 220 he does right now is fine with me. <laughs> I, there's no, no, I love him just like he is. That's what God wants you and I to have a hope in him. Listen, listen, I went all the way for you. Put your hope in me, put your hope in me. And then lastly, God's done this because, because of love. God knows this. He wants you and I, he wants our hearts, not our heads. And he does not get our hearts with rules and laws. Do you know that? Rules and laws never produce love. Think about a prison. They have a lot of laws. Do the prisoners love their guards? I was like, thank you so much for all the rules you have here. 
I realize that they are for my safety and for my betterment. I just appreciate all the laws. Thank you. And I love you. No. Think about when you get pulled over for speeding and you get given that little yellow slip of paper. Are you like, officer, thank you so much for caring about my safety and the safety of others to slow me down and possibly save my life. I love you. Anybody? No, man. You're like, ah, someone's going a little faster than me. Laws do not lead to love. Do you know what leads to love? I'll tell you. It's 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. That's what leads to love. Luke 7, 47. To whom much is forgiven, that person loves much. That when you realize the debt that's been paid, that he went all the way for you, how you love much. And it is that love, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, that Paul says, constrains us then to behave the way we're supposed to. It is the love of Christ that constrains me. It keeps me where I'm supposed to be. See, God knows this is the only thing that works. This has always been plan A. There's never been another plan. It's always been this plan. You see it 15 pages into the book. This is my plan. I'm gonna go all the way for you so that you will put your amen in me, so that you'll put your hope in me, so that you'll become my lovers, not, not some kind of military duty-bound people because that's what I want. And we actually celebrate that every single Sunday when we eat and we drink. We eat and drink his forgiveness. We eat and drink his love. We eat and drink the completed covenant. That's what we do. And it's amazing. This is the God we serve. Read your Bible like that. That's the shape of the mind that the believer is supposed to have. And then we become like Abram, amen in God. And then God says, righteous. And then we respond in love. It works. And so Jesus, this day, I pray for those of us who have been immersed in the gospel story for all of our lives. And it begins to almost be tragic that it loses its shock value. I pray Genesis 15 would re-shock us about the greatness of your love towards us and that we would be those that amen you that we would be those that when we doubt things, that we pursue you still, knowing that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that we would become lovers of you, that it would be your love that transforms us and conforms us. So may this story of Abram in Genesis 15 better shape our lives, better shape our minds, that you went all the way for us. And as we eat and as we drink, may we eat and may we drink the completed covenant guaranteed in your blood. And I pray this in your name, amen.